Good evening, I'm Marzena Farana Sherlock. I would love to welcome you to episode of Just Stories Podcast, a podcast where I meet with people and try to discover their special places and their personal stories. Today I'm honored to introduce to you Barbara McKenzie, an Islolian painter. Barbara and I don't know each other, however, after having one phone call, I feel like I have known her forever. Talking to Barbara was like talking to a friend that I haven't been in touch with for a while. It felt like it clicked and conversation had just flown. Barbara describes herself as a new lady down the road despite having lived in Scotland for 50 years. Today, I will do what Barbara loves the most. I will have a blather with her and will try to get to know her favorite place and herself. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation. Hello, Barbara. Welcome to Just Stories Podcast. Hello, Marzena. It's lovely to be here. Um, I think we're going to have some fun tonight. It's good to be able to have a blether with you. It will be great to have a blether with you. And I hope that after a wee bit of patchy start, because I didn't press record button, the conversation will go smoother than my technical skills that I believed weren't too bad. We will be talking today about your favorite places. However, before we get to that, I would like to ask you about a painting that is your favorite and what are the reasons that that particular painting is your favorite? So something that you didn't paint, but that you particularly love. That's a hard one because over the years I've always felt I'd much rather have a badly painted original painting than a very slick print because the painting contains someone's heart and soul. So to have it on your wall is a reflection of someone maybe you've never met, but you can look after them if you like. My very favourite painting is one that I bought of a, a particular auction site on the internet. Your listeners will be probably very familiar with. And it was painting of a young man. And as soon as I looked at it, I thought, I want him on my wall. <laughs> I bought him very cheaply. And I got him home. He came from France. And I discovered that it was a copy of a painting that was done in the late 1500s by a pupil of Raphael. And when this picture was first put on display publicly in the 1800s, the early 1800s in Rome, it caused a storm. This young man's painting became almost like a rock star. And painters from all over Europe came to copy this painting. He's lovely. Nobody knows who he is, yet he sits looking very aristocratic on our walls. And I just love the fact that it's a real person. It's a young man that lived almost 400 years ago at the height of the Renaissance. He's a, a violinist. He's got a bow in his hand. And he looks on us eating our fish and chips and watching telly and doing the ironing. And <laughs> he's looking onto a world he never, ever could have imagined. But I think hopefully he'll go wherever I go for the rest of my life. How did you find him? Is it a painting from a particular period you've mentioned, Renaissance, that you like? How did you come across that painting? I tend to be living out in the country as we do. I'm afraid that online shopping, particularly for secondhand things, is one of my guilty pleasures. But the great thing about it, you can do it at two in the morning sitting with a cup of cocoa if you can't sleep and suddenly discover that you've bought half a car engine from Latvia or something that you 
didn't really want, but you press the wrong button. I'm not joking, it has been known before now. But this particular young man's painting was being sold by someone who had, I must be honest, even I wouldn't have put these other paintings on the wall. The man that was selling them said he'd been to a house sale and this had been one of the paintings that hadn't been sold at the house sale and he got them at the end. I must admit when I got it, the young man hadn't had a wash for a long time and I had him cleaned. And so he came up well. He, he had a good scrub and came back to what he was. I did feel he's special. I have a friend who does cleaning pictures and I asked him if he would do it for me. I was too frightened to touch him. Just imagine sort of very carefully cleaning him and discovering that you take his eye off. <gasps> that would have been awful. Yes, he's got a very calm look. And any time I've maybe been a bit <clears throat> up high, I can look at him and it's like, calm down, dear. Yes. I've been here 400 years. Nothing bad's happened yet. <laughs> the one thing I find about him and about some of the other older pictures I've got, I don't know why the artists always painted a dark background. When you look at paintings from the 1800s, I suppose it was the colorists in Scotland and then the, the Impressionists in France and Italy that began to use bright colors. But the palette for so many of these pictures is dark. And whether it's because, I don't know, they didn't have electric light to be able to really light things, or whether they bought a job lot of brown paint and had to use it up. I think that's it. Back to recycling, I can't waste this. Splash it on the back. What I hadn't realised, Marzella, was a lot of paintings you see of women in the 18th century, they're wearing black dresses. And I used to think, goodness me, you'd think you'd go for something a bit brighter if you're having your portrait painted. But I discovered black at that time was the most expensive dye there was. A real good black dress would have cost you twice as much as a coloured dress. And so people wanted to be seen in their very best stuff. So if you were painted in black, you'd be saying, guess how much this costs me. What I've found fascinating and I have collected over the years are what's called grand tour pictures. In this country, from the early 1700s maybe onwards, it was the done thing for the young man of great families or pretty wealthy families to be finished off. Now you can take that as you want, but to be finished off on the continent for two years. And they would often be given so much money and they would be told to buy pictures, buy sculptures, buy anything ancient that could be put in the home and shown off, this is how much I'm worth. Actually, I've got 27 pictures here, all painted by Michelangelo. <laughs> but a lot of these people were, were, they had the money, but they were naive. So in the back streets of Rome, in Venice, in Florence, you had workshops of people that were doing knockoffs of these wonderful old paintings. Paint would still be fresh, and these young men would buy these pictures thinking, I've got a real antique here. It's signed. Look, it's got Michelangelo on the bottom. <laughs> a lot of these pictures now tend to come on the market. Some of them are beautiful. And most of the really good ones, obviously, are still in stately homes. Some of them are pretty diabolical, but they have a charm about them. The fact that they've had this checkered career. And now I've got four or five of them hanging in our house. And I love the idea they tell a story of these young men looking for bargains on their grand tour in the same way that I look for bargains on eBay.
that's one of your guilty pleasures, online shopping. Yes. <laughs> the reason I've started with the paintings is because you paint yourself. And I wanted to ask you how that journey of uh, getting into painting has started for you. When was the first time you started painting? And then what did you paint? I loved drawing and painting from when I was small. I've always enjoyed doing things with my hands. It might be sewing, it might be gardening, but I like my hands to be busy. I got a place at an art school in London in the 60s. They say that if you can remember the 60s, you weren't actually there. I don't remember much about the 60s at all, actually. But unfortunately, because of a family situation at the time, I couldn't take the place up at art school. I knew because I love painting so much, I either had to be really involved or stop completely. And I made that conscious decision then at about 19 that I was going to stop painting. There were other more pressing needs on my time. It wasn't until my mother was dying, we looked after my mum at home, that I needed an outlet. I needed something to do to help to relax me. And I thought, well, maybe I can try painting again. And I did. And I must be honest with you, Marzena, I'm not a good painter. But what I do have is a recognisable style. And so through various means, my pictures started to sell. And one of the reasons, I think, is because people go, oh, look, there's a Barbara McKenzie. <laughs> Only she would put green, orange and yellow in one picture. No, seriously. I did start to sell. And I had some very nice people that had me show in their galleries. I had a solo exhibition in London, two exhibitions in New York and some in Europe. And suddenly it got from being something I was loving doing to suddenly you have to sell yourself. You have to go to galleries and say, I'm the next best thing to slice bread. And you want my pictures because I'm blooming marvellous. And I couldn't do that. Also, as time has gone on, more people are making art than people are buying it now. Our times now, people haven't got that money. So I was happy to sell. I still do sell occasionally. But if you like that high zenith of, wow, I'm doing well here. As one television character used to say, I'm onto a nice little earner went from that to thinking, no, enjoy it for what it is. If people want to buy that, it's lovely and I really appreciate it. But it's one way for me to relax. But also, like I said about pictures I buy, it's a little piece of someone's heart and soul. And I feel it's a way of putting my, I'm going to say my feelings, yeah, my state of mind onto canvas. And I can look back at pictures and I immediately know if I was happy or I was sad or how I felt when I painted that picture because I understand my shorthand. I looked at your site and I guess I would like you to describe your style. What touched me on them? They are very colorful, but they've got also like a mixture, I would say, of a wee bit of impressionism in them. I don't know if I'm reading into that properly or not, but I've seen the city paintings. I've seen the country paintings. I've seen few others. How would you describe your style? What's unique about it? Well, I suppose because I'm unique, they're going to be unique. But I think maybe I, I shared with you, when you go to a gallery, they want to have what's called an artist statement. And that's basically, what does your art mean to, what do you want it to mean to other people? And often when you read these statements, they're full of tosh. People going on about the existential meaning of what I do is so important. My artist statement just said, does it go with the wallpaper? 
because generally when people are going to buy a picture, what do they think of first? Will it go in my house? Oh no, I could never live with red and purple. <laughs> so yeah, I paint because I love doing it. It makes me happy. And hopefully in most of the pictures, there's a bit of joyfulness that comes out in it. Optimism and just a love of mixing colours. I'm not a very good draftsman, I know that, but I do love colour. And if my pictures bring some colour into other people's lives, well, that's a bonus. You were saying that painting helps you relax. Would you say that the place where you paint is special to you? Or is it just a place where you go and you close yourself, you paint and that's it? That's a very interesting question. Because I have painted in different places. I suppose the best way you could describe it is a burrow. <laughs> in one of our rooms, my husband built me a... It's really small. I would say six foot by seven foot space and I have a massive easel in there with the light shining in and on the other side I have my very old and very trusty industrial sewing machine and I have one seat that is a swivel seat and I can swivel <laughs> I don't ever mean that I paint and sew at the same time you know there are limits to my inventiveness but everything is in this room and it's in boxes and it's, it's pretty tidy it's not that bad but all the colors are laid out in series I have five or six canvases on the go and it's tiny and I just go in there and it sort of shrinks to my size it's great so I call it a workshop because I'm not posh enough to call it a studio it's a bit like saying you're an artist you know you might be a striptease one for all anyone knows I much prefer I'm a painter. But then that, of course, could mean that I do a gloss and an undercoat and I'm pretty good at emotional walls. So we'll just have to let people decide for themselves what the best word is to use. I love it. And by saying that you've been painting in different places, what was the most unusual one that you can remember? Most unusual one? For you. I will tell you the most atmospheric one that is strong in my mind, which kind of overlaps with other things we've talked about. One morning, I was lucky enough to be in the old city of Ephesus in Turkey, very early in the morning. We got there about six o'clock, doesn't open till nine, but a very nice guide who knew me said, in you go, if you want. And I sat on a rock and watched this wonderful sunrise come up over Ephesus. And very quickly, I brought my paints with me, did a, a quick painting with the idea that I would go on and make it bigger at some time or other. And I never have because that little, what, eight by eight painting said it all. I, if I copied it, I'd have lost the feeling that I had there at the time. So that, that still is an emotional picture for me. You said that Turkey is a place where you feel at home and painting when you're at peace. What is the first memory of Turkey when you went there? The first picture that you've seen, apart from the one that you've just described? I think the very first thing was getting off the plane very early in the morning and the smell. It was warm. Good grief, this was April and it was hot. Having got off a plane from Edinburgh, wrapped up, you know, in layers like you do and the boots and everything and you walk out of the plane and you think, Someone's left the heating on. There's something wrong. <laughs> Walking through to go outside and the smell 
of plants, of different perfumes that you just don't get here. Even in high summer in Scotland, you don't get that sort of hit in the face by a mixture of heady plant perfume. I must admit there was some plain diesel mixed up in it, but (laughs) it's all part of going to an airport, isn't it? But yes, the warmth was the very first thing and the smell. And when we're on smells, what was the taste? The first taste that you associate with turkey? The first taste. I have two tastes. Am I allowed two tastes? You're allowed as many tastes as you wish. Two special ones. One is a drink called Iran. It sounds quite disgusting and it is here. But in a hot country, it is the most thirst-quenching, cleansing palate drink I've ever had. It's yogurt, iced water and salt. I was drinking it by the gallon when we were there. But people were going, what on earth are you drinking? You know, aren't you on the spirits? And I'd be going, well, later. But this is just amazing. I ran, you can get it in packs, but you go to a restaurant, they'll make it for you. And it's in hot weather, it's delicious. Like everything else, what's lovely there on a cold winter's day here tastes pretty awful. You have to keep it for the heat, but it does a good job. And the other thing, the other taste of turkey that stays with me is a taste that every country has. And that is a peasant food you can take to work with you. In this country, it's Cornish pasty is the one that most people think about down south. It's food put in a pastry and then it's wrapped over to look like a boat almost. If you go to Italy, it'll be pizza, pastry base, food on top, eat that. In Turkey, it's called pide. And it's, I suppose, the Turkish equivalent to a pizza, but it's a boat-shaped pastry. And it will have cheese or egg or all kinds of different fillings in. And it's piping hot. And you can buy it from street vendors or you can go to a PJ restaurant that just serves that. And I ran. So you get, I got my two favourites. <laughs> But walking along the beach with a piece of pide in my hand, clean, fresh, very, very simple taste. But again, something that is really Turkish. I've been to lots of places, to Turkish restaurants in this country, and they'll give me Iran, but I'll say, Lütfen, pide barma? Is there pide? And they'll go, pide yok. No, we don't do pide. You can't have it here. So I'll have to wait till I go back to Turkey. Have they ever told you why they are not making it? I think it needs, as real pizza needs a proper oven, pide is cooked in a special kind of oven. And probably the expense to put an oven in like that in most restaurants, just for the one kind of food, wouldn't be worth it. That's my guess at any rate. When we were preparing for the recording today, you said that there was a trip 30 years ago when you drove inland in Turkey and then you decided to retrace the journeys that were recorded in the Bible by St. Paul. The land where Turkey lies now is a huge part of that. You've written that it took 20 years for you to do it. Can you describe the whole process and where did you actually go and what was special about that? Have you got three hours? Tell me as much as you can. Okay, well, I've always been fascinated by the fact that today we recycle things. It's a big thing to recycle. But actually, 
countries have been recycled for centuries, for thousands of years. They start off as one thing and then another race or they get taken over or they get immigrants coming in and they get recycled into something else. It's the same land, same place, but used for a different purpose. We'd ended up in Turkey almost by accident. We'd had a holiday from hell and it was so bad that the now defunct tour company offered us another holiday to make up for it. And I said to my husband, can we go somewhere we would never have dreamt of going in the usual way of things? And he went, oh, okay, if it's free, we'll do it. And we went to Turkey. And that first week we were by the sea in a a little resort, not one of the great big ones. Suddenly I'm in the east. I'm not in the West anymore. I'm surrounded by people with different culture, different religion, different way of thinking things, and yet so hospitable, so friendly, that I thought maybe I could be an honorary Turk. No, that came out right, honorary, not honorary, because that sounds like I'm going to be argumentative. But can I get adopted over here? Because I felt not in a spooky way I've been here before, but I just felt comfortable. I'd found my place if you like. In my life earlier, we'd been to Stratford-on-Avon, Shakespeare's birthplace. We'd been to Verona, two gentlemen of Verona. We'd seen the balcony that Romeo had spoken to Juliet that was actually built in 1935, but never mind. It seemed good at the time. One of the greatest writers of the first century was the Apostle Paul. Whether you're Christian or whatever religion, or if you've got no religion, his books in the Bible are a triumph of persuasion, of oratory. It's jolly good reading. And I thought, what made this man the man he was? So the very first time we went to Turkey, we hired a car and we went to Ephesus. And that was the first of maybe 12 trips that we did over the years. And we realised that you could say, say you went to Marmaris. It's a lovely spot. It's a holiday spot. But you couldn't really say you've been to Turkey in the same way that someone that goes to Blackpool here can't really say, I know Britain. So we thought maybe we could put the two things together. We could go see places where Paul visited, see if we can get a feel of just why he wrote what he wrote when he did. And at the same time, explore this incredible country. And it was wonderful to be able to put those two things together. And two, to see this country that has been repurposed. It's been recycled. First, it was the Greeks. Then the Romans took over. Then Christianity virtually exploded in Asia Minor. And then in came Islam. And it's now a thoroughly Islamic culture that still respects the Christian tradition that's there. So Turkey helped to put things in perspective, time in perspective, compared to really the comparatively short history that we've got in this country. Have I heard you right? You've been going back 12 times over the years to visit different places around Turkey. I'm taking with the Bible and the stuff that Paul wrote as your tour guide. Uh-huh. Well, actually, 12 times we have visited Ephesus, but we've been back, I think, maybe 16 times altogether to different places, got to an airport, hired a car and just taken off. The places we've been to have been connected with St. Paul, but we have made some really nice off-piste journeys as well to see other places and do other things. Yes, to get a real flavour of the place. But it is amazing how much is left. And to go into a village, walk through it and realise that 90% of the houses 
have been built from the amphitheatre. Again, recycling. Okay, the stones are cut, mate. Why leave them there? We could do with a new barn. And so everyone in the village would get together maybe a couple of hundred years ago and dismantle another small part of the amphitheatre or the agora or the baths and incorporate it into their house. And that's great when things can get recycled and, and used again. What are your fond memories of Turkey? People that you came across as well, because I believe that there are people that you've met there that put a footprint in your memory. Yes, one is a very, very physical memory. A trip we did to Istanbul, must be about 20 years ago now. And Istanbul is the city of cities. It's like an onion. There is so many layers of history there. You can't turn a corner without finding a wall from Rome or something from Greece or a piece of pavement that has got some railing ground. You look down and you're looking into the most amazing mosaic. My wonderful memory was going one evening to a Turkish bath that had been built 500 years ago on the same principles of the Roman baths, where the Romans would have their tepidarium, their frigidarium. I've forgotten what the hot one was called. The hotidarium, let's call it that. The Turkish baths were built on exactly the same lines. Ladies only, very decorous, but to lie out on a marble slab that's being heated in the same way that the Roman baths were heated, to feel that heat through your body, and to realise that you're one of this wonderful long ribbon of women that have, in 500 years have laid on that slab and felt their cares just sift out of them because of this warmth. And then being absolutely encased in olive oil bubbles to sit there. And you just think, I know I'm going to go out looking like a prune at the end of this, but I don't really care because this is the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Isn't that sad that a bath could be the most wonderful thing? But the whole experience of being part of this ongoing history, the lady that, that gave me a wonderful scrub down at the end, her mother had worked there, her grandmother had worked there, her great-grandmother had worked there when there was still a harem at the palace. And they would sometimes go and clean the ladies of the harem in their own Turkish bath. I mean, that, it's lovely to be a slice of history even if it's a small slice. That put things in perspective because sometimes we don't think about places in this way. To take time and breathe and see how some cultures still live and honor the things that have been cherished by generations. It's that feeling of people still pass something that is important to them, to the youngest generation that just take it as a gift, I guess. And you were talking about all those senses that you could feel through your body. What were the sounds that stayed with your memory and that you think you will remember forever? I think being woken up at five in the morning to the call for prayer at the local jami or place of worship. And in cities, it's now mostly recorded. Five times a day, call for prayer, but it's on a tape recorder. The imam, the man that does it, has recorded his calls and just presses a button and it goes out over a loudspeaker. But in small places, the old gentleman will climb up the turret 
and he will call. Maybe he'll use a, an old-fashioned megaphone, but his voice will be cracked. We're back to what you were saying about this is a generation following a generation following a generation. And whether anyone comes doesn't matter. He still does that call to prayer five times a day. And I think that is a, one of the things that if you're staying outside of the usual resorts that people go to in Turkey, it's often an old voice, a crap voice, but you feel this is someone that really believes what they're doing and wants others to share it. Have you met somebody that you remember or you maybe stay in touch with in Turkey that really had an influence on how you saw the country? We sadly have lost touch with this couple now, but we did make friends with a younger couple who had a, a small shop and we went in to buy a couple of things and ended up staying there about three hours just sharing with them. They were both university students, they'd got married and they were running a shop because Turkey were churning out archaeology students, but they didn't have the money to pay them to be archaeologists when they left. So you had a lot of people that you met that had degrees in all kinds of interesting things, but couldn't get jobs in them. So we're doing quite menial things. And it was interesting to speak with these young people, or younger than us, <laughs> to get a view about how modern Turkey was and how people felt about the way that Turkey was developing. We were very privileged to go and stay with them. We went back a few times and stayed in their house. Just the different way people do things. It's fascinating how people cook, how they keep warm, which was very scary. Can you say a wee bit more about the way how they keep warm? I think most of us today do have our moments when we get a bit fed up with health and safety. You know, you think that's going a bit far. However, when we went again one winter to stay in Izmir, the housing, the equivalent of council houses here, but in the middle of each of the rooms, you would have your carpet, but in the middle of each of the rooms was um, a concrete block, about two inches high, like a paving stone. And on that block was a wood-burning stove. And the wood-burning stove had a pipe that went up to the ceiling, bent round, and that pipe was held on by sort of metal struts. This pipe worked its way through all the rooms of the house. So the heat would go up this pipe and along until eventually the far corner of the house, the smoke would go out. But this was the way of warming your house. However, if you were a bit cold and, and you thought this wasn't enough, you could actually buy multiple stoves and have them in all the rooms and fit this sort of Heath Robinson contraption of pipes up into the wall. And in the summer, you just took it all down and put it in a storeroom at the back of the house and there were times when I'm certain there was smoke coming out of the, <laughs> of the ceiling <laughs> and they would say oh don't worry we'll just go up and pour some water on it it'll be all right don't don't fret <laughs> but it was like sort of living on the edge of a volcano but doesn't matter all the time there were tremors because there are a lot of earthquakes there and Islam seems to have this feeling of fate If the house is going to burn down, well, it's going to burn down and there's not much we can do about it. Whereas in this country, it will be, oh, get the fire brigade. <laughs> What will be, will be. Yes, yeah. one of my scarier moments in Turkey. <laughs> That sounds a wee bit scary. And what about people going back because you've started saying that you've met that couple? Was there anything that you've learned from them? That, again, is an interesting question. I don't have family now, or not here, not around. I was very impressed in general 
the importance of family. There are very, very few old people's homes in Turkey. Everyone that has a house will have an extra room. And that's for either grandma or grandpa, or maybe both, when the time comes, not if. So there is a feeling of continuity. Your elders are important, you care for them, and they can still have a place. So when we went to stay, the grandmother was still staying in the house. So it was our friends, the girl Dilek's mum and dad, and then Dilek's dad's mother. And she would do the vegetables. She would get up at four in the morning to make the bread, which was a bit unnerving because she used to come and make it in our bedroom, which was, <laughs> you sort of wake up and over, and there'd be this little lady sitting on the floor with everything spread out, kneading bread. Because that's where she usually made the bread. So just because visitors were staying, wasn't going to change her routine at all. But it was nice to have fresh bread every morning. <laughs> I bet it was. And again, that case of almost keeping the rituals, keeping the rhythm of life despite what the disruption were, because visitors to certain point can be disruption. So that sounds really nice. Would you say that Turkey is your second home or do you still feel there as a visitor? I used to feel it was my second home. We haven't been for a while. And like we were talking at the beginning about recycling countries, I feel that Turkey at the moment is in the middle of a recycling. Whether it will be good for the country or not, it's not for me to say. But I am glad that we went when we went that we had the freedom to go where we went and we were able to talk to people in a free way. Those memories, if we went back now, might not be the same. I don't know, but I'm glad that we've got them and we'll cherish them. Hopefully, it would be nice to think that we could go back. But the other thing is age. I always used to think of us as travellers. I think we've just got to the age now where we'll becoming tourists. The ability to get up and go and not be a bit worried about where are you going to sleep tonight, which never would have worried us then. As you get older, these things mean a little bit more. And is there going to be a lavatory when you get there? That is even more important these days. <laughs> so we will wait and see. But there's just, you know, tonight, Marzena, just speaking with you, the number of memories that have flooded back into my mind that I had almost forgotten about, but this conversation has brought them up to the fore. And so that's lovely for me because after we finish, I will sit and, and think back to many other lovely things that we were able to do. This is Just Stories Podcast. I am Marzana Farana-Sherlock and I meet with people to find out about stories and places that are part of their history. I seek random stories told by random people. Today I'm talking to Barbara about the motto for her paintings and love for recycling. When talking about renewing various stuff, she mentions her father's saying, people with a taste for champagne and no money need to renew things. In the second part of the episode, we will discuss the importance of rebuilding in Barbara's life and hear about her parent generation need to renew things. How do you feel in Scotland? You describe yourself still as a new lady from down the road. So does it feel like you're still visiting or is there more sense of being at home? Well, this is my home. Everything, back to recycling again, everything I knew down south isn't what I knew. It's gone. It's been rebuilt. It's, they say it's better. Time will be the judge of that. The reason I said about new lady is not my feelings, but there are people whose 
ancestors have lived in this area for the last 150 years. So from that point of view, I am the new lady. I don't feel the new lady anymore. I couldn't imagine living anywhere else. If there ever comes a time um, when and if independence comes and they decide to send all the guest workers back again, they'll have to drag me kicking and screaming over the border. I'm sure it won't come to that. How did you choose Islothian to stay in? Well, when we first got married, we were living in Glasgow. But my husband's brother and his wife lived here. So we moved over into the onto the farm complex where we are temporarily for three months. That was 46 years ago. And we haven't quite got round to moving out yet. So I think we're here for a bit longer. I think it's similar with people like myself or a few of my friends that I've got here. It was never supposed to be for longer than three or six months, but we're still here several years later. You were saying that you like doing stuff with your hands. It's quite important to you. And you've mentioned that talking about Turkey and like recycling the country and recycling different things. Is that huge part of your life right now? well trying to repair stuff for me yes for many years what was a hobby became a job I repaired things for people locally I wasn't ever trained but someone asked me to repair a carpet for them and I was able to do it so at least it would last another hundred years hopefully and then I was asked if I could help to restore some hangings in a house that were beginning to fall to pieces old tapestries And so for quite a while, I was working in all kinds of houses around Scotland, either refurbishing, sometimes turning curtains inside out to use the other side as new curtains or making new covers for a sofa from the curtains that had been in a bedroom. Um, My father had this phrase about people that had champagne taste, but beer money. Many of our people that live in big houses in Scotland are in that position. The money isn't there as it was 20 or 80 or 90 years ago. And so they have to they have to recycle. Inadvertently, I got involved in that recycling process, which was just so interesting and rewarding to be able to use things or pick things up and be able to repurpose them for other things over the years. I guess before we finish, what I wanted to ask you, because again, you've mentioned like the family, you've mentioned how important it was. You've mentioned on the phone your your mom and grandmother and remembering how it was to be a child. Would you say that there was any family tradition that was passed on or particular learnings from the family life that you've had? I think my generation are the last people to be born into families where you never threw anything away. It's strange, isn't it, this um, theme of repurposing, renewing, make do amending has gone through our conversation. Because my mother and father had lived through two world wars where it didn't matter how rich you were, if you wanted some string, you couldn't get it anywhere because no one was making it. So you would hold on to bits of string or to bits of sealing wax. I remember my mum had a box full of bits of sealing wax when people actually used to use that to seal a letter because you never ever knew when it might come in useful and I think I've got that half of me is glad the 
The other half means that we have boxes of things. I don't know why I'm keeping them, but they might come in useful sometime. But I find this general attitude now. You use it for six months and you get a new one. Or how even big business wants you to do that. They don't design things to last forever. They give it a shelf life, like the computer that we're on at the minute. Five years' time, it will be obsolete. And what will happen to it? I love the fact that there are things that will go on forever. Well, not forever, but they will have a long life and be used maybe, for instance, our kitchen table started off as a very posh dining table, maybe 200 years ago, then gone into someone's kitchen. It then ended up in someone's garage. We bought it in a, a junk shop, cleaned it off, and it's our kitchen table. But maybe six, seven families have used it over the years and it's still usable. Why buy a new one? good to keep things going and they have the romance of a story about them you might not know the story but you can have great fun making it up yes and i love that part as well because what's around it keeps secrets and as you're saying even if we don't know that we can make that up tell you what i will look forward when this little unpleasantness is over then it will be lovely to meet face to face i would love that genuinely would love that thank you so much it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure too thank you for the blether Good night, my dear. Sleep Good well. night. Take care. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye. After the recording took place, Barbara dropped me an email and described one story that I wanted to share with you on her behalf. It follows the simple and smart secret of buying a painting. One day, during the festival in Edinburgh, Barbara was in a gallery that was showing some of her stuff. She was listening with increasing incredulity to a well-spoken man who was explaining to a group of Japanese followers what her subconscious motivation was in using yellow in a painting. Apparently, it was post-existentialistic anger at the status quo. Barbara wrote to me that she had actually had some yellow paint left over from another painting and couldn't bear to waste it, the old recycling theme, hence a painting with a load of lemons. There was no more into that painting. I really do hope to meet Barbara in person to see her paintings and discuss the lifestyle face to face. I will keep you posted when it happens. This was the eighth episode of Just Stories Podcast. Marzena Farana Sherlock, thank you for listening. You can tune in to Just Stories Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean platform. In the next episode, we will meet Justyna Majewska, gentle, healthy yoga practice lover, author of a few books and sunrise lover. See you in two weeks.